again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome back. As we continue in our third season of Scope of Practice, my name is Jeffrey Kwame, your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. And on behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. SAMHSA in 2007 stated that clinical supervision is the crucible in which counselors acquire knowledge and skills for the substance abuse treatment profession, providing a bridge between the classroom and the clinic. Supervision is necessary in the substance use treatment field to improve client care, to develop the professionalism of clinical personnel, and to impart and maintain ethical standards in the field. In recent years, especially in the substance abuse field, Clinical supervision has become the cornerstone of quality improvement and insurance. The statement has stood, uh, stood the test of time, and although the practice of supervision has continued to develop, my experience in the field of over 30 years tells me that it is still often misunderstood, underutilized, and certainly not prioritized. Today on this broadcast, we certainly cannot solve all of those concerns, but we can open a discussion on clinical supervision of addiction professionals with one of the nation's foremost experts on the subject, Dr. Carol Fallander. Carol Fallander, PhD, is the co-author, editor of seven books on clinical supervision and consultation and uh, multiple peer-reviewed articles. She was the chair of the Supervision Guidelines Task Force of the American Psychological Association, was a recipient of the presidential citation from APA for innovative contributions to the theory and practice of clinical supervision nationally and internationally, and a recipient of the 2018 Distinguished Career Constitution contributions to education and training in psychology award from APA. Just as I really believed I had the honor of being trained in clinical supervision by Dr. David Powell, I feel similarly privileged to speak with Dr. Founder. Dr. Founder, welcome. Well, thank you. What a lovely introduction. And yes, we all walk in the pathway of Dr. David Powell, such an influential, important hero in the field and a leader. Um, Unfortunately, what you're saying is pretty much still the case that in substance abuse counseling and in substance abuse treatment, clinical supervision uh, still remains on the back burner. Um, There is tremendous need and clinical supervision is viewed as the glue that holds everything together, that uh, protects the clients, provides the highest quality of care, and um, allows for the promulgation of knowledge, skills, and attitudes, competencies to future generations. Mm -hmm. So it is essential, but still neglected, unfortunately. And the one thing that you mentioned that SAMHSA didn't mention in their uh, definition was client protection. I think for for all clinical providers, that is ultimately the first line of protection protection even more so than individual ethics because our individual ethics become formed often by through clinical supervision. That's so true. Yes. As the field changes, and I'm very excited that you mentioned KSA's knowledge, skills, and abilities because a competency, as a competency-based reviewer and provider, I think of that that, uh, often. So how is the field of clinical supervision adjusting to the needs of the workforce? Well, (laughs) that's a great question. Unfortunately, I I don't have great news on that front. I think um, we have, we're moving forward. 
uh, various disciplines are beginning to recognize that clinical supervision is a distinct professional practice that requires training. So that's a first big step, that it's not just something you inhale <laughs> or that occurs through osmosis, but in fact, it requires formal training. So uh, with that recognition will come, we believe, greater efforts in professional settings to uh, elevate the value of clinical supervision and elevate the um, value of individuals who have been trained highly in clinical supervision and who can provide it appropriately and protect the clients. And also we want them to protect the supervisees because there's so many different aspects of it. One of the things that that kind of gets lost in the discussion is, is we talk about time management, um, and time management is a significant issue for professionals. And supervision often takes a back seat because of the non-billable nature of it in in the SUD field. Do the same issues exist with supervision in other behavioral health specialties? Uh, yes and no. Yes, generally, because supervision is not billable. However, in several disciplines, uh, supervision is a requirement and the quality of supervision is closely monitored and there are accreditation standards and other legal and ethical kinds of standards that have to be adhered to. So there's more of an impetus to uh, supervise correctly or appropriately, or as I like to say, competently. But unfortunately, that isn't true across the board. And in public mental health and in substance abuse treatment, we often encounter individuals who have had little to no training in clinical supervision, who are conducting clinical supervision. So if they don't value it, and we know this, if they haven't had training, they don't value it. And if they don't value it, they don't prioritize it. And if they don't prioritize it, it gets canceled. And, and that's a multi-phased uh, issue that you bring up. I know that my uh, I was appointed a clinical supervisor before I got any training in it. It was because I had the most difficult caseload and was able to manage mm-hmm. that. For others, it's because they've been there the longest or they just got a license or something. And I learned the hard way the importance of training. It wasn't until a few years later when I, I met Dr. Powell and we can talk and go into his training saying, oh yeah, that's what I should have done. Oh, I wish I had known mm-hmm. that, but mm-hmm. it, it wasn't a priority. And exactly. I wonder if when we talk about uh, clinical mental health, especially for folks with long-term mental illnesses and substance use disorders, does the lack of focus for agencies or the lack of, of training, does that in a sort of way show us how our clients are viewed, that they're not as important as others. And the conspiracy theorist in me says that's possible, but I don't know. That's why I'm throwing it out there. I think it's more complex, like you indicated earlier, that there are financial aspects that override everything. Funding, what is reimbursable, what counts toward productivity. And productivity, of course, is the magic word. And what are we going to get paid for? So um, clinical supervision is hugely protective, enhances the quality of services, promotes the individuals in the workforce to be more effective and all those kinds of things. But does it translate into dollars? And there have been people who have looked at that and who have indicated, not that many, but a few have indicated that 
clinical supervision, excellent clinical supervision, is associated with um, less turnover intent, which is thinking about leaving, but not quite turning in one's slip, but almost there. And with uh, emotional exhaustion, less emotional exhaustion. And as we know, burnout is a huge problem in substance abuse treatment and in mental health treatment and in co-occurring. So uh, that is huge. Let me ask a question I think is important for for many and for most clinical uh, providers. Can clinical supervision improve client outcomes? That is the question of our generation. And we have some preliminary evidence that hints at, yes. However, do we have definitive studies yet? No. And one of the reasons, there are many reasons, funding, prioritization, value of attached to clinical supervision, but also it's very difficult to randomize because generally clinical supervision is required. So it's hard to randomize. What are you going to do? Give bad supervision to some people and good to the other or none to some and some to the other. It's very complicated. So people are considering more elaborate statistical analyses to perhaps parse it out. But at this point, that is a critical question that needs to be answered. So if any of your listeners have the methodology and interest, this would make their career. And I ask that, and I apologize, because it's almost a trick question, because when I look at outcomes in the field, we don't really collect good outcomes in the substance use disorder treatment world. And the ones that we've collected haven't really had a positive change since around 1976. And, and I use the example of the telephone and look at the changes that the telephone has gone through since 1976. But we're unable as a field to show that our outcomes have been better. And I think that we have to do a better job of that as well. And what are we measuring and how? Well, there's one exception, and that okay. is uh, the outcome paradigm that Scott Miller and other of his colleagues have developed in which clients in certain settings do an outcome assessment, an OQ, or some type of outcome measure at the onset of each session, perhaps before they begin in some sort of computer-linked program that then translates it to an Excel spreadsheet with graphs so the clinician and the supervisee can see what the client is responding, is reporting in terms of their uh, symptoms or their behaviors. Then the supervision tracks the client report. And there's some very optimistic data emerging from that. The downside is, of course, it's extremely expensive and labor intensive and requires training. But agencies that have implemented it are feeling it's completely a game changer. And and Scott Miller trains extensively on using the SRS uh, and other forms of measurement in session, which I think we've been slow to grasp. But when you see videos of that being used mm -hmm. in session well, um, what you see from the clients is absolutely incredible, their feedback and their response to what they're receiving. Exactly. Uh, so I'm a big fan of, of that feedback-informed treatment, and I think that that's an important positive aspect that we should push. But again, with training, and, and you also need training to supervise that. But, uh, you know, and it's the, the client view of outcome that's important. Uh, and I think if they can, if they're expressing better, feelings about their sessions and about their overall treatment, that's gonna bode well for the field. Uh, 
when we spoke a few months ago, there were many topics that we could, we created a, a big list that we could talk about this and we could talk about that. Um, I'd like to address just a few because we have limited time. And one concern that I have is the basic outline of what clinical supervision is often remains misunderstood. Yet there is a simple way to address that by using a supervision contract. Can you explain what that entails and why having a supervision contract is important? Well, we feel very strongly, and there's, this is the biggest area of research and supports this idea, that the relationship between the supervisor and the supervisee is the essential component of clinical supervision. So this requires supervisor competency, and in a sense, it requires some supervisee competency. Um, there are formats available in many settings of supervision contracts. And uh, it's a translation of the informed consent agreement between the supervisor and the supervisee, what the expectations are with clarity about each aspect of supervision and what will be happening and what is expected. Um, we know that when supervision, well, we kind of know that when supervision <laughs> contracts are used, it's associated with better practice and with greater supervisee satisfaction. Conversely, there's some evidence that when supervision contracts are not used, there's a greater association with inadequate supervision as reported by the supervisee. What are some things that, that are covered by a supervision contract in general? Well, uh, many there are many, many prototypes for it, but generally it uh, relates to all the logistics and the expectations. The expectation that when there is any type of emergency, for example, the supervisee will immediately, especially in acute emergencies, contact the supervisor and here's how to do it. That the supervisee will come every week, the appointments will be uh, regular, they will not be canceled. If they are, they'll be rescheduled. That uh, if a supervisee has an emotional response to a client or any kind of reactivity or countertransference, they will be forthcoming about it. If there are issues in the alliance or misunderstandings, hopefully the supervisee will come forth and uh, let the supervisor know about that. But generally, that may or may not happen, that the expectation is that all the legal and ethical parameters will be attained and achieved, and that uh, if there are problems with professional competence, the supervisee will be the first to know about them, that uh, they will be informed in a timely manner about concerns in any area of functioning, including knowledge, skills, and attitudes, and that these will be directly addressed. There will be no surprises. So that like at the end of seven months or something, the supervisor says, you're not up to par, goodbye. None of that, that there is tracking attention to performance and to competencies and direct attention to it. Also that each supervisee has self-assessed on competencies for their profession and that they collaboratively with the supervisor have identified two goals. And within those goals, there's a task for the supervisee and a task for the supervisor. And those are implemented virtually in every supervision session, not at length, but just a few minutes checking in on that. Mm -hmm. For example, a goal might be a greater self-awareness of the client's uh, emotional state when 
conducting the psychotherapy, more attention to that. And the, t- uh, the task for the supervisee would be identifying moments when the client seemed um, disconnected or not understanding. And then the supervisor's role would be either to review the video, if they have that, which is a wonderful, wonderful tool, or to role play with the supervisee, uh, the instance, and to think about how it could have been handled differently or both. You brought up some things uh, that are that I'm hearing are, are incredibly important. And, and what we're seeing is a parallel process in terms of the informed consent, um, that it's an ongoing process. It's not, here's what we're going to do in supervision. And then at the end, it's always reviewing it in session so mm-hmm. that it's easier to bring up, hey, what's happening today? And this is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. But also you talked about the therapeutic or the relationship, the supervisor supervisee relationship. And the parallels with that, um, with client relationships for yes. uh, each therapist. Um, what are some of the distinct differences in a supervisor-supervisee relationship versus a uh, therapist-client relationship? Well, a major one is that um, in any issues like emotional reactivity or anything that arises, the supervisor does not turn to the clinician as a client, but in fact keeps their focus on what impact does this have on the client? How did that impact your session? The fact that it reminded you of your substance abuse history and you became perhaps almost tearful. How, what happened at that moment and how did this impact your work with the client? So that would be highly important to differentiate because it's important to see if you have a supervisee who is able to manage that affect and be able to keep their focus on the client and the client process, or if they are slightly not to role play, to help them in multiple ways, to support them, to keep their focus, not on their own experience, not turning inward, but to keep their focus on the client process would be one example. And I think that that might've been exactly the example I was looking for, because one of the things that we often see in this field is a misunderstanding of the therapist-client relationship and an assumption of reciprocity of need when that doesn't exist in that relationship. Exactly. And then oftentimes in supervision, that reciprocity of need gets discussed instead of clear ways and safe ways to separate it while still understanding there's some counter-transference and transference issues that really need to come forward. So I, right. I that's really what I was looking for. Can I just add one thing? And that Certainly. is that often substance abuse counselors in their training Uh, Their personal experience is such an important part, and it's elevated to a very high level so that they have learned so much from their personal experience if, in fact, they're in recovery. And um, a difference in many mental health settings is that the treatment is not about their explaining everything and talking about their own history and um, what worked for them, that in fact, there's a division there, that in fact, they need to be focused on the client and on the client's trajectory and what kinds of things have happened to the client. And they need to be able to, in supervision, separate out their response. So that's just an elaboration of what you were saying, I think. Mm-hmm. 
and I think often what what comes up uh, in supervision from when I talk to supervisors or, or certified supervisors things is is that they often help uh, clinicians in recovery understand that that provides them with incredible insight into what may be happening and gives them kind of fuel to ask those pointed questions of clients, as opposed to say, when I was in that situation, here's what I did. Mm-hmm. And eliciting a response from the client um, based on the insight that we have. Exactly. Yeah, this is not about the substance abuse counselor. This is about the client. And so it's very different. We call it multiple relationships is one thing that's different mm-hmm. that uh, needs to be attention to the relationships and not assuming a friendship relationship, not assuming a collegial relationship in terms of uh, talking about everything about oneself. And I shouldn't say collegial, but a relationship mm-hmm. in which one talks about oneself as opposed to the client. One of the things that you've written and lectured on extensively is competency-based clinical supervision, which I think is absolutely an amazing and incredibly useful tool and technique. Um, I've been lucky enough to be trained by the ATTC to be able to provide that uh, training to to clinicians on that. And what I see about it is it's great for a novice supervisor to kind of get the lay of the land but it can also be used by a a skilled supervisor to really uh, increase the level of skill of the people I work with. Um, So what are the basic tenets of the competency-based supervision process? Well, we have implicitly talked about a number of them. We've neglected multicultural diversity and cultural Mm -hmm. humility, which is a frame for the entire clinical supervision process. And again, it kind of relates to the idea this isn't about you as the clinician so much as it is about the client and understanding and being um, thoughtful about the impact of us and our own identities, not to mention the supervisor as the powerful one and their own identities, not to mention them, of course, anchored in the client. So that's one basic dimension. Um, I've mentioned many of the different parameters, but a Establishing the relationship, monitoring the relationship, monitoring the emotional tone of the relationship. This is all about supervision. Mm-hmm. Um, monitoring, uh, if possible, the client outcomes. If at all possible, video or audio review of sessions. That is such an important tool. Even if it's infrequent or even once, it is an indispensable kind of tool and gives information that supervisees may not have self-awareness to understand what they're actually doing during the process of supervision. Monitoring competencies, ensuring that they are in fact in keeping with the level that should be for their level of development and uh, job, and uh, addressing their self-care and attending to the impact of trauma, which we see a lot of on them, on their persona, and how they're responding to trauma and whether they're using trauma-informed kinds of um, procedures or techniques with their clients to ensure the interaction, the interactive view between substances and trauma, and outcomes and how all this is blended together and not ignoring one for the other and not prioritizing, but interpolating them. And as I mentioned, the legal and ethical 
uh, aspects and regulatory because many of them are going toward licensure. And we need to be sure we know what the uh, jurisdictional regulations are there. And uh, generally tracking competencies. And if in fact they're not meeting competencies, addressing that immediately with feedback and perhaps a higher level of concern if there's concern that they're simply not meeting the benchmarks of performance in terms of their competence. I love the self-assessment and then that it's also done by the supervisor where they can compare the numbers or how they rate themselves being from having knowledge, awareness of to mastery. And it always gives some, uh, there's always fodder for the clinical supervision, even for a, a novice uh, supervisor to kind of get the where that works out. And I think that it's, uh, that's why I like it so much because I just see the potential in it. Um, you mentioned cultural competency, cultural humility, multicultural issues. Um, it's something that we as a field give a lot of attention to when it comes to therapeutic relationships. But can you talk about that in terms of the supervisory relationship? Well, it's interesting you ask that. There's a lot of emerging research in the last year, actually, or two, about how neglected this has been. I was conducting a workshop a few days ago, actually, and some of the uh, supervisors were saying, in my training and even beyond, I can't remember a supervisor ever identifying any identity of their own that might be imp impactful in their worldview or what they're saying or what the interventions are and how that would relate to the client situation. Often supervisors are privileged. We have jobs, <laughs> we work mm -hmm. and uh, we have some power. Maybe it feels little, but we have some and we have our own identities, multiple identities. And um, so not taking those into account and not having a discussions with the supervisees, not intrusive discussions requiring them to self-disclose everything that's ever happened to them, but thinking about the impact of them on everything, on how they see the problem, on the setting, on their relationship with the clients, their expectations, on all of that in supervision as well is a problem. So we need to acknowledge privilege. We need to talk more about our identities. We need to uh, think about what our perspectives are and what they're being framed by and how important it is for us to do this consistently in a in a context of cultural humility, respectful process. One of my colleagues in the Portland, Oregon area, Dr. Bob Lynn always talks about a, uh, uh, that we, we often believe that our perspective, our worldview is universal. Uh, mm -hmm. And he, he talks about that, that we have to ask questions at times. We have to be clear about where understanding where we come from and then understand where somebody else has come from so that we're not stepping on toes and that we're being effective. But it also sounds like what you're describing is when we're working as supervisors, working with our clinicians, it's almost a, the legal voir dire of you know, <laughs> how are these things going to affect your ability to make decisions and are there hiccups that you see so we can address them? Um, and as you were talking, I, that's all I could think of was a very similar process to that. Um, 
Keep well, preaching. we don't want to get too legalistic, please. No. <laughs> <laughs> you previously have, have talked about an appreciation of the three-pronged diversity, client, clinician, uh, and supervisor, and how difficult that can be to grasp. Um, is there anything that you could add uh, to your comments to explain that a little more? Uh, sure. It's that we each approach everything through our own lens, whether we're aware of it or not. And in my experience with substance abuse, um, I did a lot of substance abuse counselor and uh, psychologist and social worker and marriage and family training because substance abuse was being neglected totally. Uh, there was ne there were zero percent of people who were reporting any substance abuse because they were never being asked, or if they were, the question was, "You don't use substances, do you?" Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, the transformation of that would be the very first step. But I think beyond that, it's important for us to think about what we bring. Like I am a privileged white woman. I'm older. I'm generations apart from many of the counseling center clients who come in who are undergrads. Um, and I see the world through very different lenses than many of my super, most all of my supervisees and very different lenses from all of my clients. And they also have their own. Some have moved across the country or around the world, who knows, many different presentations. And to just treat everyone as if we're just sort of a standard therapist is no longer acceptable. Mm -hmm. We have to think about what our contributions are and what our worldviews are directing and imposing and uh, how important it is to think about that and even address them more directly in both the supervision and the therapeutic process. That kind of leads me to this question. Is, is it fair or is it even appropriate to add a fourth factor to that equation, the overriding culture of an organization? Um, two companies, two organizations can be across the street from each other and be, mm -hmm. serve the same type of client, but be mm -hmm. very different. Does that come into play as well? Absolutely. There's some work from Janet Helms, for example, um, and her colleagues talking about regressive versus progressive supervision patterns. And in um, regressive, the supervisor has less developed uh, identity, cultural identity, okay, than the supervisee. And in the case of regressive, when the supervisor is not as advanced, race and identities do not come up, or if they do, they're kind of discarded. And then they added another factor, which was the institution they work in. And if they work in a regressive institution, in fact, even the most progressive supervisors feel pressured not to uh, demonstrate their progressive kinds of behaviors or attitudes. So I think this is very important work to consider the context we're in, the impact of the context on everything. So it's fair to say that the organizational culture, you know, would certainly have a significant impact on our appreciation of what diversity is and how we view it. Everything. And also they're the microaggressions, microaggressions in quotes, that some settings are just um, fraught with microaggressions and everyone just sort of accepts it as a matter of 
course that these kinds of verbal or nonverbal expressions are occurring and they're very hurtful to individuals who have the identity of the microaggression. And uh, Daryl Sue has done some wonderful work on how we need to be micro asserting, how we need to be asserting ourselves and intervening rather than just letting it go and saying, oh, well, it's just a microaggression. Yeah, and the the old excuse of we've always done it this way can, mm-hmm. can kind of fuel that um, if we don't address it uh, moving forward. Um, so what is it about clinical supervision that keeps you passionate and driven about the work? Seven textbooks, teaching, um, <laughs> that's a lot in the field. Yeah, um, there's always something new. It's always evolving. And uh, individuals who, like yourself, who ask questions or who direct us, it's just so exciting to see where it's going and what the future directions are and what kinds of things we can teach or learn from the students we're teaching and incorporate that in the evolving theory and practice. It's a never ending challenge. I know that when I have conversations with individuals about clinical supervision, uh, um, wherever they are in in the field, I think I've learned something from every conversation. Maybe if it's just that person's perspective, but it always gives me something to think about. How would it apply? How would this apply? And Mm -hmm. I think that for me, that's really important as well. So um, before we finish up, anything that you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, I'm just so impressed with your range of questions. <laughs> you were so comprehensive. Yeah, uh, a little, a, a, a little about a lot. <laughs> it's a, it's a talent yeah. <laughs> for sure. Um, I think the major thing is to understand that clinical supervision is a distinct professional competence, even if you've been doing it for some number of years. Sit back and begin to read some things and uh, self-assess. There's actually a self-assessment that's fairly easy to um, gain online, and I can send you the link to it, that um, a supervisor can self-assess and think about what are my areas of strength. Sometimes it's hard to self-assess because we're bad self-assessors, but we could maybe even get a little feedback or notice what our supervisees bring up that we've neglected and things like that to kind of up our game. So to be involved in a continuous uh, improvement project personally, to try to learn more things and try to gain more skills and knowledge and attitudes. And it's a fast growing field. Well, Dr. Fowler, I really would like to thank you for your time today. Uh, I'm Incredibly grateful that you spent a little time with us, and uh, I look forward to hopefully speaking again in the future. Perfect. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You have a great afternoon. Thank you. Uh, Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Carol Fowler for taking the time to chat with us and for sharing her experience, her perspective, and for helping us understand a little bit about the complexities of the clinical supervision process. We welcome any organization to join our podcast as a sponsor. And I can be reached at info at ctcertboard.org for more information. We here at the Connecticut Certification Board appreciate all of you who listen. Please don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, wherever you get your favorite podcast. We'll catch you next time, everybody. Bye.